This is the morning service of Long Hill Chapel, February 6th, 1983. The scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. The sermon is titled, The Kingdoms of Our Hearts, given by Pastor Bubna. We want to commend to you for prayer this morning, some needs that are not mentioned in the bulletin. Elwin Schoen has surgery tomorrow morning at Morristown Hospital, and as you know, uh, Alice is in a cast at home with a broken kneecap, so they're going through a very difficult time. Let's be upholding them and reaching out as God lays that upon our heart. Others are mentioned, Helen Mercer, Florence Coons, are both at Overlook, and I see Rob Trapaniers in the choir this morning instead of in the hospital. Aren't we glad about that? Fred and Joan Nelson ask an interest in our prayer. The little boy, Seth, has pneumonia, which is a matter of concern to them. The uh, worldwide leadership staff of Transworld Radio is in the area this week for a retreat, and uh, we can be remembering them. A number of them will be in the services today, and we especially welcome them and covenant to be praying as they meet together to consider that great ministry. Let's go to the Lord with thanksgiving and prayer. The scripture reading for the day is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And this can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 1054. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. And it reads, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This past week, Jeannie and I took a tour of the Ford Theater in Washington, D.C., where Abraham Lincoln was assassinated on April 14, 1865. As we were getting ready to go on the tour, I overheard the tour guide, who was dressed in a Revolutionary War outfit, speaking to another employee and explaining to this employee that Jesus Christ was either a fraud or else, he said, more likely, Jesus Christ did not intend for anyone to follow him, 
but his disciples conspired together to make this up about him and start a new religion. As I heard him talking, I decided that I was obligated to say something to him if I had an opportunity. After the tour of the theater, we went across the street to the house where Lincoln was taken after he was wounded and where he died a few hours later. And as people were milling around, I got over beside him and I said, Mike, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation before we started about Jesus Christ. And if you would give me a moment, I'd like to leave one thought with you to think about. Well, he wasn't real anxious to hear that, but he was courteous. So what I want to tell you is this. I said, uh, Charles Colson, who was involved in the Watergate thing, says that the thing that convinced him of the truth of Christ's claims was his experience at Watergate. And I think that caught his interest a little bit. I said, what happened was that when this thing broke out, the men around President Nixon, who were aware of what was going on, conspired together to silence. They would tell no one, no matter what. I said his experience was that when the pressure came and these men were arrested and taken to trial, that one by one, each of them broke, confessed the whole thing, told about the others in order to save their own neck. And Charles Colson says that when he read the gospel records, and realized that here were 11 men around Jesus Christ who were later persecuted, arrested, imprisoned, and many of them martyred. And not one of them backed down on who he claimed Jesus Christ to be in order to save his own neck. He said, I was convinced after my experience at Watergate that it was humanly impossible for 11 men to conspire and nobody give in to save his neck. And I said to Michael, I said, Michael, I want you to think about the fact that not merely here was one man who claimed that Jesus Christ was God, but here were 11 men, many of them imprisoned, some of them martyred, and not one of them turned around on what they claimed. I said, Michael, you need to think about that before you write it off. He said he would. The faith of the New Testament church was rooted in the witness of these men. They had lived with Jesus Christ for three and a half years, had walked the roads and hillsides of Galilee and Judea. They heard him preach and teach. They ate with him. They knew him intimately. Their word and witness of him became authority to the first century Christians. After all, they claimed that he was God in the flesh, that he was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Old Testament Israel, and that he had come to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, that we might stand righteous before God. Now, in the first years of their preaching, as they preached and then Others began to pick up their message and preach it secondhand. Their witness was the fact that Jesus Christ had lived a blameless life. They told of his mighty works of power and grace. They told of his sacrificial death and his mighty resurrection from the dead. That was their witness. 
These men apparently believed that Jesus Christ was going to return in their lifetime. I mean, they supposed this whole drama was going to take place in a period of a few years. However, when the, the disciples began to be killed or to die a natural death, it became evident that they needed to leave their witness behind in writing for future generations. And so a number of records about Christ were written in those days, four of them canonized by the church as witnessing to the fact of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you that in the upper room, the night before he was crucified, Jesus said to the disciples, When I go to the Father, I will send to you the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. I believe Jesus was promising to these men that the coming of the Holy Spirit would guarantee their ability to leave behind the record, a creditable, infallible record, and witness about himself. Now these men, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did not leave a biographical record about Jesus Christ. That was not their intent. You may recall that only Matthew and Luke mention his birth. Luke gives one account out of Christ's childhood. Uh, but other than that, for the first 30 years of his life, there's no word about Jesus Christ. It all begins when he begins his ministry at the age of 30. His ministry lasts three and a half years, which is not quite 1,200 days. Are you aware that in the Gospels, the four Gospels, there's only a mention of 50 different days in Christ's life. And that most of the material in the four Gospels have to do with the last seven days or eight days of Christ's life. This is not a biographical record about Jesus Christ. What these men were leaving behind was a testament of their own faith and conviction and witness as men who walked with the Son of God and who observed His glory as they did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Each of these four men also were not only merely leaving a witness of their own conviction, but they were directing it at a specific part of the population. Both Irenaeus and Origen, the ancient church fathers, state that Matthew addressed his writings to the converted Jews of the first century. And as you read the book of Matthew, it's very evident that his message to the first century Jews was that this man is the king of the Jews and the king of the universe. I want us to look through the gospel of Matthew this morning. I hope you'll follow along in your Bible. We're going to look at a lot of portions and Maybe keep uh, also in hand the outline on the back of the bulletin. The kingship of Jesus Christ. Matthew begins by talking about the royal birth of Jesus. In chapter 1 is that long genealogy that details the lineage of Joseph. Do you know why Matthew wrote that? Matthew wrote that because he was wanting to say to the first century Jews that this man Jesus had a legal right to the throne of David. 
As we've studied the Old Testament prophets these last Sundays, you may recall that on, an, on numerous occasions the prophets said that there was going to come a ruler who would sit upon the throne of David and rule there forever in righteousness and justice for, for the whole world and bring Israel to the full intention of what God promised in the beginning. They were looking for somebody for the throne of David. 400 years had gone by. There is no king upon that throne. Matthew is saying, here's the man that legally and for every other reason has a right to sit upon the throne of David. And then in chapter 2 he talks about the events of that birth and how there came magi, these wise men from the east. And I think there are two implications to their coming. One is that... Uh, Matthew is saying that there's going to come a day when leaders and men from all nations of the world are going to come and bow the knee and do homage to Jesus Christ because he is king. And secondly, he tells about how King Herod got all upset when the wise men came to Jerusalem looking for the newborn king. Matthew is implying that all kings and rulers of all times are going to be shaken to the foundations of their government by the sovereignty of this king who alone is God's appointed man to rule. But there's another facet of, of the life of Christ that Matthew talks about in the last part of chapter 1, where he tells of the angel appearing to Joseph and announcing to Joseph that this child that is to be born to Mary is conceived of the Holy Spirit, that Mary is a virgin, and that this child who is to be born is Emmanuel, that is, God here among us. Ninety-three times in the book, Matthew quotes the Old Testament, each time trying to show that this man, this man is the fulfillment of the word of the prophets and God's promise to Israel. He is God in the flesh, and he is the king. And he deserves to be Lord. Matthew was a tax collector. He walked away from his lucrative business one day. He put his life on the line. He stood in the midst of persecution. He was willing to die for his witness, and his witness was, this man was God in the flesh. And he is Lord of all of history. A good deal of Matthew's gospel deals with the regal reign of Jesus Christ. For he pictures Jesus Christ after his temptation coming out of the wilderness and beginning to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew's theme is the kingdom. What about the kingdom? Well, there are two ideas that flow all through the Gospel of Matthew. One is that there's a kingdom that is coming someday, a future kingdom. It is the fulfillment of the prophetic word. Christ is going to return, Matthew 24. He is going to reign in power and righteousness and rule the whole world. And there is going to be peace. There is a future kingdom. But the other theme alongside all through Matthew is that there is a present kingdom that is here now. Christ has come here to reign now and here in the midst of a fallen world ruled by the enemy, men, mankind in rebellion against God. Christ is going to reign right here now in the hearts of men. That kingdom is established 
It is going to exist. Men and women are going to follow him in the midst of a fallen world until that day when the kingdom is complete. The future kingdom is the hope of the Christian. The present kingdom, the present kingdom is the call to discipleship now. Listen to what Matthew records Jesus saying about this present kingdom. In chapter 13 are a number of parables about the kingdom, I believe seven or eight. These parables are telling us what this present kingdom is like. In verse 24, for instance, is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He says a man planted a field full of wheat, and when the wheat came up, he discovered that an enemy had come in and planted all kinds of weeds. And he's faced with what he's going to do. Can I go in there and pull out the weeds? If I pull out the weeds, I will destroy the wheat. He says the kingdom of God is like that, where the, where the wheat and the weeds grow up together. And they're going to be there together until the day of judgment and the harvest, when the weeds will be taken out and cast out and the wheat will be brought into the kingdom. What's he saying? He said, in this day and age, the way the kingdom is, is that it's a mixed bag. Wherever you see the manifestation of the followers of Christ, you will find sincere people who are the wheat, and you will find insincere people who are the weeds and they grow up together and our Lord's word to his disciples was it is not your job to pull out the weeds there comes a day of judgment when God will make all things known a lot of people today have trouble with the whole idea that the manifestation of God's work in the world is mixed but that's the way Jesus said it was going to be there are going to be insincere people mixed in. We're going to have to live with that. We're going to have to let God deal with our hearts and with the hearts of other people. Walking as clearly as we can, making the word clear, calling men to reality, but knowing that that's the way the kingdom is. Then he goes on in the next parable to talk about the, the mustard seed and the leaven. He says, the kingdom of God is like the least of all the seeds in the world, the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when you plant it, it brings forth a great tree in which even the birds can live. Or, he says, it is like a bit of leaven that is put in a big lump of dough and begins to permeate it all. What is he saying? He's saying, in this age, the kingdom of God is insignificant quantitatively. It's not big but it is powerful qualitatively. It's a little seed. Nobody would pay any attention to this kingdom of God, but when you plant it, it brings forth something big and powerful. It's like a bit of leaven. You put it into the dough, and it's not large enough that you think it's going to make any difference, but it permeates the whole lump. God's kingdom is like that. God's intention was not that in this age his kingdom would be quantitatively overwhelming, 
but he did intend that it would be qualitatively powerful to permeate. One of the issues that is facing us today in the evangelical church is that this is the day when evangelicals are being recognized and we appear to be quantitatively powerful. Many are saying who are leaders in the evangelical movement 50 years ago when we were a small minority that nobody would even look at we had more spiritual power and influence in our society than we do now when we're 45 million strong our Lord's parable has something to say to us then in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 6 and 7 he talks about the lifestyle and character of the kingdom he says that in his kingdom, in his present reign in the hearts of men, the lifestyle is diametrically opposite to everything in the world. The Beatitudes that the choir sang this morning are saying that, aren't they? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where do you sign up in the world to be poor in spirit? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All of God's qualities, all of the things that he blesses and says will bring deep spiritual happiness are the things the world has no regard for. So it is in the kingdom. He goes on to point out in the same portion that the, the, the kingdoms of this world have to do with the externals, but the kingdom of God has to do with what is internal. For he said, you've been taught that a man shall not murder. That's the world's standard. But I say to you, he that hates his brother in his heart is a murderer. And you've been taught, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the externals. But I say to you, the man that looks after a woman in his heart to lust after her has committed adultery already. The kingdom of God is dealing with the issues of the heart. It is the rulership of the affections. It is the discipline of the inner man and he goes even further than that and says the world says to you and you've been taught an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth but I say to you in my kingdom in my kingdom if someone smites you on the one cheek turn the other one there is a present kingdom its lifestyle is diametric to the world. In chapter 6, our Lord goes on to talk about the value system of the kingdom. He counsels them about heavenly values. He says, don't lay up treasures on this earth where moths and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nothing can bring corruption to your investments. He talks to his disciples about the worldly attitudes of concern about everyday life. He said, the people of this world are always concerned about what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What will we wear? Where will we live? And Jesus said, this is paganism. He reminds them in beautiful metaphors, are you not aware that the birds of the air do not sow or reap or spin? Your heavenly Father cares for them. He says, God is at the funeral of every sparrow. And he said, think about the lilies. They grow where they're planted. 
And God causes them to be arrayed in a glory greater than King Solomon. And so his counsel to them is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom. What kingdom? The present kingdom. With hope in the future kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. In this recent issue of Leadership Magazine, Elton Trueblood, the great Quaker philosopher now 80 years old, was interviewed about his ideas of the church. And here's what he says. I, I was touched by it. Quote, A healthy fellowship is a redemptive fellowship. It is penetrating the world, not for its own aggrandizement, but to change the world. Almost all of Christ's metaphors for the church are penetrators. Salt to penetrate the food, light to penetrate the darkness, leaven to penetrate the dough. The emphasis is never on the instrument, but on the function. A successful church is one that is changing the world, chiefly through the attitudes and actions of its members. Successful church is not measured in its buildings, how many bodies sit in the pews on Sunday. God's idea is the church is measured by its ability to penetrate. Is it making a difference where it lives and works on Monday and Tuesday? Are the structures of the world and all that stands against God being undermined and penetrated by the light and the salt and the leaven because down deep in our hearts he rules in the kingdoms that are there Matthew's message about Christ is that this man was born to reign and that the critical issue of your life and mine is the kingdoms of our hearts what about the kingdom of your heart what is the value system that rules there? What is the lifestyle and attitudes that flow out of that fountain? What are the goals and dreams and aims? Are they brought under the rulership of this man who was born to be king? The third movement in the Gospel of Matthew is the redemptive sacrifice of the king. Like the other Gospels, the main part of the book is the record of the last seven days of our Lord's life. Matthew's point is that this man is able to be the king. He is set aside to reign, and he has a right to the kingdoms of your heart because he died in your place on the cross to pay for your sin and wrong and to purchase the gift of salvation for you. In chapter 21, Matthew describes our Lord's coming to Jerusalem and riding into, into the city on the back of a donkey. And in verse 4, he quotes the prophecy from Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew's point is that Christ riding into the city is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that the king of Israel is soon going to come. And Matthew is saying when Jesus rode in, he was confronting the city as their king, and they knew it. 
and they rejected him. And they nailed him to a Roman cross. All the parables that Matthew records in the next chapter that Jesus told during that last week of his life are all parables about the king and his servants, the owner and his stewards, the ruler and those under him. All of them are parables that have one point in mind. This man is the king. What are you going to do about it? This man is the owner. Are you willing to be the steward? This man owns everything you have. Are you willing to serve him? That's all the parables that were told that week. And finally in chapter 24, Jesus told his disciples that there, came, or there would come a day when all of creation would come to its culmination and the heavens are going to open and the Son of Man is going to return in his glory to rule and to reign in righteousness. He's the king. This tax collector... This Jew who had sold out to the Roman conquerors to make money off of his own people. This tax collector who had walked off from his desk one day and left it behind to follow this man. He tells us in these closing chapters that he was there the day that they nailed him to a cross. Roman soldiers did it. The people he had worked for, they nailed his Lord to a tree. And Pilate, the Roman governor, put a sign above his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Matthew's message to you and I this morning is that the man who hung on the tree was the King of the universe. And he laid down his life for you. And for me. If Matthew were here about this table with us this morning as he sat with those twelve men that night in the upper room, he would say to us, You can come to this table because our Lord laid down his life in your place. Faith in his saving work at Calvary brings not only forgiveness, but the promise of eternal life and righteousness in God's eyes. But Matthew would say to us today, he was the king. If you're going to come to this table, you need to think about the kingdom of your own heart. This man has a right to rule there. Jesus in that chapter in the Sermon on the Mount said to his disciples, no man can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew was a tax collector. He remembered what Jesus said. He himself had to face the issue of his own life, the illegal way he was making money, and walk off and leave it to follow this man. And his witness to the first century church was, this man is the king. Let's gather at the Lord's table this morning and worship the king. 
and let us surrender afresh to him the kingdoms of our hearts. Shall we bow together? Later generations of Christians called this table the Eucharist, which means the great thanksgiving. That is why we need to come today to remember and to give thanks and to properly respond. Lord, in this quiet moment, we pray that you will accept the worship and adoration and gratitude of our hearts for the King who died in our place. I pray, Father, that your Spirit may bring a new sense of reality about that to us today and one that would help us in these quiet moments to open the kingdoms of our heart to him to reign. We ask in his name. Amen. We invite you to this table this morning. It is a table believers. Though you may not be a member of this local church, if you are a believer, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you're invited to partake with us this morning. It is a table of discipline in a sense. It calls us to remember. It calls us to come honestly with a heart that has come confessing and open to God. And I trust you'll not come today if your heart is not right with God and if you're holding back, if you have issues that uh, need obedience, I think this table is a reminder to deal with that. But it's also a table which is not saying, pass it up if you're not right. It's a table that the, that the Lord meant to say, no, you can't pass it up. You need to get right. So uh, these moments are ones afforded to us by our Lord to refresh our hearts in forgiveness and to partake afresh. I trust we will. Let's hold the bread and the cup till all have been served. After our Lord broke the bread and gave thanks, he said, this is my body. Shall we partake together? The Lord took the cup, said, This is my new covenant. As oft as ye drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes, shall we partake together. Blessed Father, we go this morning with our eye fixed upon that day when our Lord shall return and our heart affections set upon that present kingdom that he may reign and rule in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.